We've got to find stocks that we really like, that we have confidence in. We don't just buy, let's say, Thailand. We want to find a Thai company that we really like. So we use the macro then to get the timing right. However, when things go in reverse, if our macro is giving us a warning sign, then we do sell even companies we really like. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with Ian. BD, Ian, are you ready to rock? <laughs> I'll do my best, Andrew. I really will. <laughs> and very exciting. Fantastic. Yeah, we try to get the energy up. So, why don't you give us a little background about your work history and kind of where you are, and then after that, any little tidbits about your life. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Well, I've been in the investing business since very beginning of January 1992, So, and like you, I started off as an Asian specialist, Asian equities. We learned a lot in those uh, 1990s, didn't we, Andrew? Yeah, <laughs> we for sure. We thought we all sorted. And then uh, there's nothing like a globally significant crisis to really test your knowledge of markets, whether it's how a company works or how an economy works and how those two are joined up. So pretty exciting learning experience and not always um, a pleasant one. Uh, But then since then, I've been in East Asian, Asian and emerging market investing. And now I am co-CIO at a company called NS Partners based in London, where we are, I suppose, an investment management boutique. The product that's closest to my heart that I head up is the emerging markets. And I uh, look at the Asian equity investments there. So uh, most of our clients are institutions, usually from North America at the moment, although we hope to change that soon. And obviously most of the money is going into emerging markets and and Asia. It's interesting, you know, sometimes you see people in their careers where they rotate through, you know, uh, different markets, different regions, emerging, later developed, maybe bonds or stocks. But you've kept a pretty strong focus in the area of emerging markets. Has that been because of its never-ending learning or because it's more exciting and fascinating? What is it that kept you focused on emerging and in particular Asia? A a few things. One of them is I think uh, you've always got a soft spot for your first love. But also, though I have been involved in developed market equities a number of times in my career as well as I've never let go about emerging markets, and now we've got a bigger team here. You know, we've got some. I've got some great colleagues that are picking up various uh, specialisations in developed markets, which means that I can concentrate more and more on that first level. But as you say, there's always, there's never a dull moment in uh, in emerging markets, and Asia in particular. There's always something. There's lots of structural change, and one of our specialities here at this firm that I've been at since um, the mid. 90s is that we tie macroeconomic analysis to stock analysis and we combine both so that is obviously more exciting in in uh, in, in asia and in emerging markets where you get to see a very rapid um, connection between uh, what's going on globally um, in economics and finance and what's going on right down at the uh, at that individual stock level and i love that that connection and that and- feedback loop that you get and for the listeners out there, you know, uh, part of what we're talking about is the concept of top-down and taking some view about what's happening in the economy in different sectors versus 
I have some friends of mine and people I've interviewed where they don't care at all about what the macroeconomic environment is or anything. They just say, I want to find a company I really like with management I really trust that has inherent growth. Would you describe your strategy as top-down and then you implement it through stocks? Would that be right? I'm tempted just to say yes. There's a little bit of a nuance there in that uh, we have an asymmetry in that. So when we're looking for investment ideas, when we're putting money to work, we like the macro and in particular for us, for our process, the liquidity, which I won't go into now, but it's a particular type of money supply analysis that tells where the best place to have your assets are. But then the final decision is at the stock level. We've got to find stocks that we really like, that we have confidence in, all the sort of things that I know you talk about, Andrew, the real fundamentals. We don't just buy, let's say, Thailand. We want to find a Thai company that we really like. So we use the macro then to get the timing right. However, when things go in reverse, if our macro is giving us a warning sign, then we do sell even companies we really like. That is emotionally very difficult, but we find that we're better off having the tide in our favor rather than, you know, if you've got a good stock, but the risk premium is blowing out in, let's say, Indonesia, then you're still better off having the second best or third best stock in another market where the risk premium isn't blowing out, interest rates aren't going up, the currency is not going to fall on you. Got it. Well, we're taking a little extra time to talk about it because, you know, we've both been in it for a long time and it's, it's fascinating. As I look at kind of different strategies and all the different people that I've met over the years, as a sell-side analyst, I had the advantage of really talking to, let's say, more than a thousand fund managers over time to try to see and understand their different, you know, methods and ideas. And that's quite a learning experience for me. And one of the things, if let, let's go back in time to 1992 when you started, 1993 when I started, if you recall, the, the way that stocks were traded in Asia was that people would go to a brokerage location, to a branch or the headquarters, and they'd bring their lunch and they'd sit down and they'd watch the boards of the flashing lights and they'd be buying and selling. And I always think about it sometimes over time, you'd go see grandma down there and she'd have her lunch and she'd be buying and selling to another guy, let's say grandpa on the other side of the room, and they'd be buying, she'd be buying stock A and he'd be selling it and they'd be having a lot of banter going on. And what I always tried to say is for them is to look behind that board because behind that board are people like yourself, as an example, who are looking at much bigger factors and maybe looking at that particular stock A in a very, very different way. And so whenever we're trading, it's important to remember that we're trading against a lot of very smart people who are employing different you know, tactics. And so that from my perspective, always keeps me on my toes, that it's not, investing is not a local thing, and it it wasn't back then, and it it certainly isn't now. That's very wise. I think that's the thing about our business, isn't it, and about the markets in general. People who are good at it, the people who last a long time, they have to have an unusual balance of arrogance, because you have to believe you you can beat the market, when a lot of academics out there will tell you that you can't. But at the same time, you need to be, you need to have a huge amount of humility 
because there are smart people out there. The, the academics do say you can't do it consistently. You know, it's just one of, those, one of those things that you have to have that peculiar mixture of being humble, but arrogant enough to still go out every day and do it again. I like that. You've got to have humility. Another way of saying that is you've got to have humility or it will be given to you. <laughs> <laughs> just when you think you really got it all sussed, you exactly. it's, it's about to hit you very, very hard. Fantastic. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. That first opening line there, nobody thinks they're going to go into uh, their worst investment, reminds me of my colleague Tim Bray on the developed market side here. He always uh, likes to say he's never bought a dog, but he's sold a few. Um, (laughs) I like it. It's a slightly cruder version of, uh, of, of your way of saying it, maybe. Now, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and uh, downplay the number of losses I have, because you probably called me on the Mandra. You can probably remember some of them from, from way back <laughs> then. And they're, they're still occurring with um, very too high a frequency now. Um, I think only somebody very self-deluded or very inexperienced um, are not going to have a long list of losing positions. Personally, I don't think you can even assess a fund manager until they've fallen over a few times and pick themselves back up again after every time. I remember telling John Duffield when he was asking me my opinion on a couple of so-called star fund managers, my opinion of them, and I said, I, I don't know yet, because they haven't fallen over yet. So in, until that first, at least that first time, and preferably more, I don't think you really know. And, and as we said, um, yeah, I've probably got quite a few to choose from. But I think I can pick an easy one. You know, We can talk about um, one that really hurt the portfolio a few years ago, Car Inc. in China which is a car hire firm, a bit like the Hertz of China. It looked great and the balance sheet was fine and there, there was some cash flow, although not great operating free cash flow. I think I underestimated the threat from firms like Uber, the Chinese equivalents there. And the management weren't quite as good as I initially thought. They certainly weren't like the Hertz guys that had helped them set up originally. And so I could go on. I've got loads of examples like that. But I think that in a way, those... What, what have we got to draw from that? We've got to draw from that is why it went wrong and identify the reason for it. Because, Andrew, I'm uh, probably slightly different to you in that I know your quality and I normally think of you as a value quality investor. I'm more of a quality growth. So if you look at my portfolio, uh, my stocks will probably typically have higher valuations attached to them. So when it, when it goes right, it's great. When it goes wrong... It's going to be a very nasty share price fall before your value investors will come to my rescue and start buying. <laughs> the marginal buyer is a long way away once the store is broken. For me, um, process and discipline is just as important as it would be for a value investor. I think it's very important for me to always identify when it's going wrong, why is it going wrong? Is it noise? Is it timing? Because we've always got to get our timing right, haven't we? That, Time horizon, I think, is so important for an investor and knowing what your own time horizon is. We, we draw a lot on, um, in our process on a OODA, what we, like an OODA loop. So it's, um, the OODA loop was invented by a chap called John Boyd. He was a fighter pilot in the US. And basically, in, I think it was in the Korean War, the, the US had forgotten how to do dogfights. So he had to like, invent a new way for a pilot to reorientate in the heat of the moment and then act accordingly. And, and if we adapt that methodology that people still use in many walks of life and in, in many institutions, we sort of get a, a, a loop that goes round that is, first of all, is observe. 
So we, we might say, observe the situation, what's going wrong with the stock. And, and I would say, really, for us in our business, it's identify. And then orientate, if you're a fighter pilot, or for us, maybe analyze. And then decide, plan what you're going to do about it, and then act. And then go straight back into that loop again. Observe what's happening now. Have you made the right change? Now, for us as fund managers, that would involve risk control. Uh, Reforecasting is very important. So with the new data, because usually if a share price has gone wrong, there's some new information. New information, don't forget to redo your forecast and be honest, be brutal with yourself. I'm going to bring in another concept in a minute. Now, for us, I have a great advantage. Institutional investors, as you know, have great advantage on in information, on costs, but also I have a team. And I think this is increasingly a team sport at this level. And I, I use a peer review mechanism. So it doesn't matter whether you've only been in the business a couple of years or whether you've been in it 30 years, you have to subject your decisions to a peer review on an ongoing basis, not just when we buy the stock, but when we review it. So I'm talking about car with my, with my team. Even the junior guys are saying, what are you doing? Have you not seen the apps here, the Uber apps? And this management just seems to be going for growth now and maybe they should be getting more cash out of it. You know, I'm getting hit with this and I realize I cannot defend it. And there's beginning to be a bit of drift. I'm beginning to come up with different reasons to own this stock, which is different from the one I bought it. So if you bought a stock or if a value investor bought a stock for a value reason, that should still be the reason why you sell it or, or hold it. If I've bought it for a narrative, for a growth reason, and that story is broken, then I should sell. It's then a matter of when am I, when am I selling, but I've got to sell. So immediately, as I know the theme for your, your series here is how the emotion gets involved. This is an emotional business. So the peer review, as well as obviously people might bring in more information, its most powerful tool is an emotional check. Because when you buy a stock and it starts to do well, we all know what it's like, don't we? We're great. We feel great about ourselves. And then it does even better. And now you're saying, this is a great company. And then it goes up higher and you think, it's a great company with great management and I'm a genius. And then it goes even higher and then the market's all on it and this is a great company, genius management, and I'm a genius at picking it and so on. But when it starts to go wrong, do the same thing in reverse. Yeah, in, in, the, in the other order. So initially, the market's wrong. Now, that's very rare, isn't it? You, you and I know that's rarer than we'd like to believe. Then suddenly, management are miscommunicating. And then maybe at the end, it's not a very good company or, or, or there is a problem. And then at the very, very end, if the market's really trashed it, the management are crooks or liars or whatever, which they weren't, of course, um, for mo most cases. Um, and, and you, as a fund manager, are an idiot. So within a month or two, you've gone from being a genius to an idiot. Now, your peers will probably tell you that neither <laughs> are the correct, is the correct response. You were not a genius when it was going up, and you're not an idiot now. So we find the peer review mechanism, and we don't use a vote, by the way. We use a, a veto to empower and encourage dialogue rather than point scoring or, or tactical voting or political voting. Brings us back to earth, keeps us grounded on the way up, and hopes, hopefully we'll We'll catch this before it goes horribly wrong. But if it does, if it is one of those disasters, but the story was right, if the story isn't broken, but has there's been a one-off exogenous event, we try and take the emotion out. Is it maybe, do you, do you double it here? Now, we find that's rare. That's probably because of our style. 
but when it does happen you do have to have then you, you need to be adding to a position that's gone very wrong when you emotionally then don't want to you actually want to throw the towel in so we find this peer review linked in with this ooda loop type thing um very powerful both to stop us getting too carried away with our genius but also not to think we're stupid idiots at the bottom and could you take us to that moment in the peer review process when things started to change like let's just say in the beginning you got this stock into your portfolio and you didn't get vetoed obviously because it got into it but then there was that time when all of a sudden you got a couple of vetoes or however that works, you know, what, how did that go? Because it's one of the ones that really hurt us. It should have got it quicker, <laughs> but um, you know, it's my responsibility. One of the other reasons why we use a veto is it remains the responsibility of the manager that put it on, not the teams. We can't have people abdicating responsibility. It's still an individual, but yes, the team was saying to me, you know, we had a debate sort of thing early on. No, the apps are going to hurt it and everything else. And I would say, no, it won't, because it can still sell to these people as well. You know, I had arguments to count. But then, as the story did start to deteriorate, and unfortunately, this was now showing up in the share price, the team are saying, look at the operating free cash flow. Don't just look at the cash flow, which I'd, I'd obviously seen. You know, your mind wants to get confirmation. There's a confirmation. But, you know, you look for that behavioral error that I was making. It's looking for data that was reinforcing my view. Peer review is saying, well, look at the other data. And in this case, it was the free cash flow. The free cash flow is deteriorating. There's no margin for error here. Plus, you've got this structural problem. And they made me realize I was banging my head against the wall. And so they, they, uh, they eventually made me dissent. Now, the error here was this was too long. So the examples of when this works is when you catch it quicker and um, rather than slower on this one. So we should have done this one a bit better. But yes, it's using it to avoid those behavioral errors. The peers can often see those behavioral errors um, probably a little bit easier than we can. Does the way that it works that you have your discussion about, you have, when you're updating the story about why I think we should continue to be in this stock, yes, some things have changed, but here's my updated forecast. These guys can turn this around, blah, blah, blah. And then you finish that presentation. Then as you're wrapping up on that particular stock, getting ready to go on the other, is that when you can say, is there anybody in the room that would veto this? Is that, is that how that works? Uh, yeah, broadly. Um, that's sort of more near the beginning. But once it's in for the review process, then you, you, people are going to come at you. You're, you're expected to participate and dialogue. Even if you actually agree, somebody has to play devil's advocate. Yep. So, yeah, you, you don't very, very, uh, you know, the, the chair of the meeting shouldn't allow anything to be non, not competed at some point. Right. Um, the, the two important things that come out that I think are of interest to anybody, even if you're an individual investor, you know, the loop can be used by an individual mm -hmm. because you, you're doing two things here. You're checking for behavioral biases, but you're also reforecasting. Your, um, the other people in this series that you've interviewed have talked about Kahneman and behavioral finance and Montier, and that's all great stuff and really important. And that's what we're trying to get at here with this, with this peer review. It's about behavioral finance and behavioral psychology. But the other thing that we've got to do in conjunction with it is to work on a lot of the research by um, Tetlock. So Philip Tetlock, um, the, the easy book that he's written is called Super Forecaster. And there's a couple of crucial elements of that that I think are really helpful. One is 
to keep altering your forecast. And the other one is, you know, so, so um, every time there's new information, adjust your forecast by a small amount. That way you do not need to be a hero. You're more likely to be accurate. Because if you're less likely to be a hero, you're also less likely to be, to be a villain, as it were, to get it completely wrong. So by incrementally changing your forecast, it's going to be more accurate and less likely to lose money and more, more likely to make money. And this process fits with that very well because we're going to have to keep adjusting. The other thing that Tetlock um, and Graham talked about in their book, sorry, Gardner, talked about in their book on super forecasting is they make the contrast between a hedgehog, what they call a hedgehog, and a fox. Um, this is like really ancient terminology, go back to the Greeks, I think. But basically, the super analyst, Andrew, um, and we've all been guilty of this in our time, who like to make a name for themselves and get very well rated, not necessarily best at running money. But people who, and especially you see this when, they, when you get experts on TV or in the media talking about politics or forecasting anything, the ones that the media like to talk about. And these people are very helpful. Um, and we call these hedgehogs. They know one big thing. So a hedgehog knows one big thing. It's got its spikes and it curls up and it's a ball. And it does that very well. Foxes don't have one big thing. They're more eclectic. They will change their forecasts, their, their risk, as it were, their risk assessment continuously. They're quite skittish. I would say that managing money or trading markets, you're better off to be a fox in terms of your approach. So be more eclectic in your gathering of data, have different strategies to hand, be ready to change your mind much more quickly, but in a controlled, disciplined manner. We don't want to get whipsawed. So a good analyst, a good forecaster will be a more of a fox, but will use those hedgehogs out there because nobody knows their subject better than a hedgehog, whether it's on politics or on a particular industry or on a particular cycle. But we all know, and you've been interviewing them as well, people who know one subject so well, but they don't see the fact that something has changed uh, elsewhere in the world, maybe in a different industry, and it has completely changed everything. And your portfolio is now at risk because of something that you didn't forecast. And a hedgehog might not even see it until it's too late. We need to draw on those, those two. We draw that out of um, Tetlock's work there, that hedgehog versus fox. There's some great hedgehogs out there and we need them but um don't let them run the money got it got it let me summarize a few things i take away from this story i think one of them is kind of a little bit of a technical thing that i'd like to share uh particularly for my students in the valuation masterclass, and that is you talked about the difference between cash flow and operating free cash flow I'm thinking what you're saying is that if we look at just a typical cash flow in a financial statement, in a cash flow statement, we look at operating cash flow. What we're not considering is the, um, the amount of investment that's needed to be made, investment being made in the change in the networking capital. Uh, so if it's a manufacturing company, they have to have more and more inventory as they grow. They may have growing accounts receivable. Uh, these are short-term uh, current asset items, but actually they kind of become like a long-term investment because you need to keep investing in these uh, to grow the business. And the second one, of course, is uh, what everybody knows so well is the concept of CapEx or fixed asset investment. And if we look at the free cash flow calculation, it's really saying, you know, what is free or available after this level of investment? Am, am I, is that correct that what, what, you're, what they were saying should be spotted in the free cash flow? Yes, that's exactly right. And so when you tie that with my getting excited about the story, you can see why I was making excuses for it. 
but you can only do that for a few quarters. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. Realize that you're wrong. So that's exactly right, Andrew. Okay, got it. And then um, the other thing that's kind of a, an interesting thing to think about is sometimes information arrives too late. So for instance, a great example is, is this concept of, for instance, a, a rental company or a traditional taxi company, and then along comes Uber or in China, Didi, or in Southeast Asia, Grab. And it's, it's, only, a, it's only a fad in the beginning, and it's, it's a small number of data points, and it's a small amount of information. People that are, let's say, on the cutting edge and call it right, see it early. But when we're invested in an idea or a stock that would ultimately be hurt by this, sometimes by the time the information has come out enough to verify that, oh my God, this is bad, it's already in the price. And I would say that from my perspective, listening to what you're saying is that that's like the, that's the fine edge of being a fund manager is that you've got to wait for some confirmation and test it, but that you can't wait too long or else it'll come in the price and then you'll lose it. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, no, I, um, I think that's exactly right. So for us, we, and I think if you're investing in a fast changing area of the world, like emerging markets, I would say structural changes such as those are often under forecast. I mean, you've mentioned before in this series that analysts typically under forecast anyway. They cluster and they lag. And that's one of the things that we're all trying to take advantage of, isn't it? But if there's a structural change, we can all sit around, all the analysts can buy and sell side, can sit around talking about this structural change that's coming up. We seem to underestimate it because it's a step change. We know it's going to occur. We don't know what, when it's going to occur and at what magnitude. So I would generally be very wary of any structural change. And I want to be having a portfolio that's, as long as it's not already hyped too much, which is obviously requires some judgment. I'd rather have a portfolio that might benefit from this shock than be hurt by it. So that's what I would say. For the audience, one way of visualizing a structural change or structural impact is that if you go sit on the beach and you watch the waves come in, they just come in in a pretty regular pattern. Some people may have seen it on videos about the tsunami, for instance, in Thailand that happened in Indonesia and other tsunamis, and you, you see it from a distance, and it doesn't look that big. It just doesn't look that powerful until it's there. It's overpowering. So I like the point that you're making about structural changes are hard, to, hard for us to really forecast the true impact of those. And I guess I would think about the difference between a typical wave that's hitting the shore, a tsunami that's approaching from a distance that you can really just barely make out that that's a pretty big swell, but you really don't understand the magnitude of the impact of what's going to happen in about seven minutes when that hits the shore. No, I think that's, that's very important. We, um, so our macro work, we try and tie in with the structural change stuff because we know that investors can get very excited about some well-known structural trends. And then when the liquidity disappears, they can fall the most. So we do tie that in with our macro work quite a lot, looking for when liquidity is coming in and coming out to reinforce a structural change. If we get those at the same time, you can make a lot of money. But when that liquidity starts to go out, you probably find those come crashing back to earth. Yeah, quickly. So there's two more things I want to take away from what you've talked about. Um, I really like something that you said about the idea of coming up with a new reason to own a stock. 
And this is such a, I've never heard it said that way, but this is such a common thing. Like someone buys a stock at a hundred, it goes down to 60 and they say, well, I'm a long-term investor. <laughs> yeah. well, wait, a, wait a minute, you weren't buying this originally at a hundred to be a long-term investor. You were buying it because you thought it was going to go to 150 because you're actually saw a 12 month time arising of an amazing story. And now you've changed your story and you've come up with kind of a new reason to hold the stock, which usually is I'm not selling until it gets back to a hundred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, so that, that's, that's a, that's a crucial point and reason why we minute these peer review meetings. So to, to just really guard against somebody changing the reason why they own the stock. Got it. That's critical. And then the last thing I would take away is that I was lucky when I was about 25 years old, I worked for Pepsi in Los Angeles and I was working in manufacturing, even though I graduated in finance, but I was really moving towards statistical quality control and statistics and all that. And there was a man that was pretty famous at the time named Dr. W. Edwards Deming. And he was giving lots of lectures on quality. He had been teaching the Japanese about quality. Companies like Toyota have implemented his quality system from 1950s till today. And I read his books and then he came into town. And so I went and took a seminar and it was so powerful that I went and took another one in, uh, in Washington. And I actually have the, the viewers, the, the listeners can't see it, but I've got a, a bookshelf where on the, the over my right-hand shoulder are two of his books and both of them being signed by him. And I have pictures of myself sitting next to him as a 25-year-old guy, just absolutely blown away. But he talked about what's now called the Deming cycle. And it used to be called the Schuert cycle because Schuert was the guy he originally got it from. But that was called a PDSA, Plan, Do, Study, Act. And his point was, is that, you know, you look at gathering information about what it is you want to do and then developing a hypothesis. And then you, you, um, you do, you implement what measures you think are going to make a difference, such as, you know, I think that if we change the temperature of something that we bake, it's going to come out chewy. Okay, that's your hypothesis. Now do it and test it. And you find out, oh, no, actually, it came out burnt. And so you study that to say, okay, this didn't come out the way we planned. And what Dr. Deming always said is that there, there is no learning without the hypothesis something to yeah. gauge ourselves against and then you study and then you act as in you either modify or you implement what you're doing and then you go back to pdsa and you go around and around and that's how you actually build scientific knowledge and in the case of a fund management company or a case of a company you, what you're really truly building is a competitive advantage you're, you're getting an expertise in an area by going around and around on it until you really come up with scientifically based solutions. So that reminds me a lot of the Deming cycle and, and what he talked about in there. So that's another thing that I would take away and really the final thing I would take away. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think we've got to learn from our mistakes. Uh, somebody said, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but it's the fools that don't learn from them. And to learn from them, you need to know what you got wrong. And some of those are unforecastable, genuinely exogenous events. And that's why you have a diversified portfolio, right? Um, but many of them are mistakes that we've made. And those are the ones that we have to learn from ourselves. And um, Again, make sure we've got a diversified portfolio, but make sure we do learn from them. And we, but we've got to identify them or we'll react wrongly. Yeah. 
Um, and one way to think about this, um, he used to say was about the rooster that crows every morning that thought that, you know, after he crowed, the sun would rise. Yeah. So his theory was, of course, he was a pretty powerful guy, you know, rooster. And every single morning when he crowed, the sun would rise. So therefore, his crow was causing the rise. That was his theory. But one day he overslept woke up and didn't crow and the sun rose and now he had a hypothesis to revise but if he didn't have a hypothesis he would have been left with no new learning and that's that's, right. yeah, that's, good. that's the way dr deming um, taught me and so that that's something i'd, I'd take away well i think i think that's we'll, very very true <laughs> um I think we'll wrap it up there. Um, based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our least listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? One is to have some discipline like an OODA loop. So you do exactly as we say, you know, to observe, orient, decide, act, or whatever it be, and to genuinely stick to it so you can learn from what's going on. Well, first of all, identify what's going on, learn, and then act appropriately. But to go with that, know your emotions. So if we know how our emotions are pulling us away from a rational response or clouding our judgment or stopping us from acting or maybe making us to act inappropriately, this will be a much easier thing to implement and we'll get even more out of it. So really, I would say some discipline like that. And then when you're doing it, know how your emotion affects you. So be a bit more self-aware about that emotional side of things because we've all got them. If you drive a car, you feel your adrenaline going up, you have to try and lower it to, to drive it better. I'm sure those fighter pilots are about to do the same. And it's the same with running money. It's all about greed and fear, isn't it? Yes. And I think what I would add to that is just the idea that investing is truly a physical activity. It is proven very well through functional MRI that every single movement in our portfolio and every single thing that we look at, we are having an emotional, a behavioral and a psychological and an intellectual response to it. And those are very real physical reactions. So I like what you've said about the emotional part of it and being aware of that and also being aware of when it's really posing a risk to your investing. So great stuff. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning to find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Ian, thanks again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, maybe since we were talking about how uh, physical and, and, and mental it is as well and, and um, emotional, I'd say uh, take a leaf out of the uh, poker player's book and keep it tight and aggressive. Keep it tight and aggressive, not loose and aggressive or loose and passive or tight and passive, but keep it tight and aggressive. Fantastic. Great advice. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.